I'm sure you're all familiar with statistics about the decline of Christianity in the West. There's lots of numbers coming out about how many churches are closing or that students go off to university or college and they never return back to the church. Pastor Dave actually was sharing with me a report from the Barna Group, and this was specifically about Canada from the years 2019 to 2021. And there were all these different topics and kind of sociological research. Uh, loneliness is spreading like wildfire in Canada. People are looking for hope. They're looking for community and they don't see the church as a place to find this. They asked Christians and non-Christians a number of questions in the year 2019 and the year 2021, and some of the numbers changed. So they asked people, do you see the church as something that's good for people and good for society? And in the year, 2019, about 30% of non-Christians said yes, but in the year 2021, that number dropped by 10%. 10% less people thought the church was something good. And when Christians answered that question, there was actually an 11% drop between those who said yes in 2019 and those who said yes in 2021. In two years, a 10% drop by non-Christians and an 11% drop by Christians. And when they asked the inverse of that question, when they asked, do you think that the church is bad for people? Do you think that religion is bad for society? Both non-Christians and Christians, more of them said yes two years later than they did in 2019. So basically, in Canada, the opinion of believers and non-believers is not getting better of the church and of Christianity. And we can ask ourselves why. Why is it that less people, at least in the West, think that religion isn't valuable, that it's not good for people. And, you know, perhaps it's that the church needs to be more relevant. You know, we could get some, some better looking pastors up here, maybe. Maybe uh, the church is trying to be relevant too much. Maybe we need to be more authentic, or maybe the church needs to let go of some of these antiquated and outdated beliefs. Or no, maybe the church actually needs to hold fast to our beliefs and proclaim our theology fearlessly, and maybe that will draw people back to the church. And we can endlessly philosophize and theorize about this. Everyone has their own favorite hobbies, not hobbies, pet horses and, and causes that, you know, the church just needs to do this better. We can do that all day. But there's one question that I would like for us to think about today. There's one question that's going to arise whenever we study scripture. When we see Jesus proclaiming the good news where he was, we saw that he drew in the outcasts from society. The outcasts were drawn to him and he repulsed, he offended the self-righteous and religious types. Jesus drew in the outcasts and he repulsed the religious types. But now it seems the church in the West seems to have the opposite effect. We seem to draw in the self-righteous religious types and we repulse the outcasts of society. I'm painting with a broad brush, but I hope that some of this seems credible. But why is that? Why do we have this inverse social effect? And is there perhaps something that we're doing that contributes to this? So to answer that, we're actually going to be looking at one of Christ's most offensive parables. It's one of the most offensive parables that he tells. When we read it today, we feel warm and fuzzy. But the audience, the people that he had in mind when he was telling this parable, were horribly offended by what he said. So we're going to study this today and see perhaps 
where our misunderstanding, where our misalignment might be. So would you turn to Luke 15? This is the parable, the story of two brothers, or it's better known as the the story of the prodigal son. We're going to be in there today. We are a few weeks in to our series called Detox during the season of Lent as we prepare our hearts and minds for what Jesus is going to accomplish on Easter. One of the things that we're doing is we're going through this, this short little sermon series called Detox, And we're trying to detox our hearts and detox our minds. We're doing a gospel posture check just to remind ourselves, what are the core tenets of the Christian faith? What is this whole thing about? And how can we realign our hearts with Jesus as we prepare ourselves for Easter? And so the first week, we looked at this concept of God and money, how we can't serve two masters, and that we're to lay up our treasures, not on earth, but actually in the kingdom of heaven and what Jesus is doing now. That was the first thing we saw. Then Terry Sanderson came and shared with us this gospel posture of being open-handed, open-handed with who God is, with who God says we are, and all that God has for us. And then Brandon shared about loving our enemies, about forgiving those, about not seeking out vengeance, but trusting that God is good and God is just and leaving these things to him. And today we're looking at Luke 15, the story of the two brothers or the prodigal sons. So the chapter opens like this uh, in verses one and two of Luke 15. It says this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. This is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. So this crowd around Jesus, it's made up with two broad groups of people. There are the tax collectors and the sinners. And over here are the scribes and the Pharisees. Basically, socially, they would consider these the the insiders and the outsiders. Uh, Tax collectors and sinners, these are concepts we really don't have a clear equivalent of in our minds today. But consider this, okay, tax collectors were those who collected taxes in their community on behalf of the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire covered at the time a huge, vast amount of of land. Their, Their empire, their territory was enormous, and they raised taxes to help fund their military. Today, if there's an uprising in one part of the world, Um, getting there and dealing with it can be done pretty quickly just due to modern technology. Space, vast regions and amounts of land aren't big problems to be solved in and of themselves. We've got technology, missiles, jets, the whole shebang. But at this time, it might have taken a month or months for an army on one part of the Roman Empire to get over and deal with an uprising in the other part. So they couldn't just have an army that went all over the place. Instead, the Roman Empire had a massive army that was in many places at once. So they took taxes in these regions that they occupied to fund the army in that place. So the tax collector was someone from the native people that collected taxes for their occupying powers They took a little piece off the top. They took some money for themselves, but they were the person who was actively funding the people who were oppressing the region. They were the person who sold out their own people and were helping to fund the oppressors. Okay, so these guys were on the outside. They were disloyal. They didn't care about their people in their place. They were the ones who sold out their own people for a buck. That was the tax collectors. And it says tax collectors and sinners. And sinners was kind of this generic term for those that were considered unclean. 
those who were stained by their sin. They weren't allowed in the temple. There was no redeeming them. These were bad people that you wouldn't associate with if you knew what was good for you. So consider uh, prostitutes were considered to be sinners, unclean, but also people that were just having any kind of physical deformity or disability. They thought at that time that, hey, if you had that, you must have sinned or your parents must have sinned. And they would walk up to you and say, hey, screwed up. Who's, who screwed up? You or your parents? That's how blunt it was. You had sin. This is why you were like this. You're irredeemable. You can't come to the temple, okay? These bad people on the side over here and the scribes and the tax collectors. And Jesus is eating. He's associating with these dirty people on the outskirts, these tax collectors and sinners. And when you eat with someone, you're dignifying them. You're showing that they're worthy of your time. And so the scribes and Pharisees are upset by this. This is how the stage opens. From here, Jesus is going to tell three parables. I'm briefly going to summarize the first two. The first parable that he tells is about a shepherd. He's got many, many sheep. One of the sheep goes missing. And instead of just writing off that sheep as a business expense, like, okay, that, that sheep's gone. At least I've got the rest of them. This shepherd leaves his flock. He leaves the 99 and he goes out and he searches for the sheep that was lost. He finds it, he brings it back, and he throws a celebration. He rejoices with all of his friends and his neighbors. Look, the sheep that was lost has been found. Then Jesus tells the story of a woman who had 10 silver coins or drachma, and she loses one coin. She has 10, she loses one. And she searches high and low. She lights a lamp, she searches her whole home, and she finds the one coin. And when she finds that coin that was lost, she rejoices. She throws a great big celebration with all of her friends and all of her neighbors. Both stories show something that was lost, something that was distant, cut off, and far removed has been brought in, and there's great celebration. So Jesus tells one story. He tells a second story. This precedent, this pattern has been set, and now he tells this third story. So let's continue here. Story of the prodigal son, or the two sons. And he said... There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. The father is saying to the son, I don't want you, I want your stuff. Give me my share of your stuff. Now, in a traditional Middle Eastern culture, a father would be expected to meet such a statement by driving that son out of the family, like with nothing less than physical blows. Incredibly insulting to say now, let alone then, okay? So they would expect that boy's getting a whooping. He's, he's out of the family now. But no, the father actually responds graciously. So this is, this is already the first strange thing that happens in this story. And he, this is the father, divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So this son takes all his money, goes out, squanders it, spends it, parties it all away, and now he's at rock bottom. All of his friends are gone. 
his fair-weathered friends, and now he's working in these fields with pigs. These were considered to be unclean animals. He is as low as it gets. He's actually lower than as low as it gets because he's with these unclean animals, and he's looking at the food they have. I don't know if you've worked with livestock. I've never looked at the food that animals are given, that I'm giving them, and thinking, oh, man, that looks pretty good, (laughs) let alone you think the food looks good, and they won't even give it to you. So he's with these unclean animals. He says, wow, these guys have it better than me. And he won't even be given anything. Okay, so he comes to his senses. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So the young, the younger brother, he's insulted his father. He's renounced his family. He squandered all of his money on wild living. And in this, this rare moment of lucidity, this moment of clarity, he thinks, oh my word, even my father's hired servants don't have to live like this. And so he starts to scheme to himself. He's rehearsing this story. Okay, I'm going to go back home. Uh, I'm going to talk to my father. I'm going to say, hey, you you don't have to take me in. I'm not asking for you to forgive me or anything. I'm just looking for a job. Can I be one of your hired staff members? Now, pause there. What do you think the father should do? What's reasonable for him to do? What would you do if you had one of your children do this? Take your money, spit in your face, leave, blow it all, and they come back home empty-handed and hungry. To give you a little bit of a contrast or context for what's about to happen next, there's actually in the, the Mahayana Buddhist tradition, in one of their uh, lotuses, the Lotus Sutra, there's a parable, a similar parable about a very wealthy father who has a son, takes his inheritance, and he blows it all. And the son ends up working for the father as a staff member. Now, the difference here is the son doesn't recognize the father. He's out for a long time spending his money. He ends up working for his father, doesn't even know that's his father, but the father recognizes the son. So the son doesn't know that's his father, but the father does know that it's his son. And the father lets his son work for him for many, many years, for decades. And the father's watching him. And when he sees that the son has developed, he's grown in maturity and responsibility. After the son has kind of worked his way back, the father reveals his identity to him. He says, hey, guess what? I am your father and you can come back into the family now, okay? And this is how the parable ends. It ends with these lines. As we have always observed the moral precepts under the rule of the knower of the world, this is where it's important, we now receive the fruit of that morality which we have formerly practiced. So I'm not bragging on Buddhism in particular. I'm just showing you this is kind of what you would expect to happen. You reap the fruit of the morality that you have practiced. You get what you give. You reap what you sow. And if you want things to change, you you better work your way out of that pit. Okay, that's what's expected. And this is what happens when the son comes home. Let's continue reading. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Men at this time did not run. Patriarchs with families and land and servants did not run. It was undignified. Yet the father sees his son a long way off. 
He picks up his tunic. He may have tucked it into his belt almost to make shorts, exposing his legs, and he runs down to see him. He doesn't stand from a distance with his arms crossed saying, you got some nerve coming back here. He runs and he embraces his son. Now, what does his son say? His son is kind of flummoxed. He's bamboozled and he immediately jumps into his speech. He says, and the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called, to be called your son. And the father doesn't even, he doesn't even acknowledge this. He doesn't respond to this. He doesn't even dignify this by acting like his son said it. This is what he does. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. The best robe in the house, that was the father's robe. And by putting it on him, this was the unmistakable sign that he had been brought back into the family. The father's saying, I'm not going to wait till you've sufficiently paid me back. I'm not going to wait until you prove to me that you're a better person. You're here now. And I will cover you. I will cover your poverty. I will cover your shame. I will cover your nakedness. I will cover you and adorn you with my honor. I'm going to show that you are part of my family. And if I say this, nothing you've done can go against that. He covers all these things. Servants were expected to be barefoot. Not my son. Get him some sandals. My son is back. He is alive. And also at this time, meat wasn't something you ate all the time. It was kind of considered a delicacy. And the most expensive, the best piece of meat was the fatted calf. So it was very, very rare occasions that the fatted calf would be served. And so it was probably likely, as best as we can tell today, that the whole village would have been brought to this celebration, to this meal. This was a huge party. Immediately word spreads. Everyone comes. There is food. There is celebration. And there is dancing. All of this to celebrate the restoration of the younger brother who has been restored back to life. He's been restored back to the family. He's been restored back to community. So Jesus is showing here, just in the first act of this parable, that God's love and forgiveness can pardon and restore any kind of sin and wrongdoing, anything. He's saying to to the, the sinners and the tax collectors, you haven't gone too far. You haven't gone beyond the reach of my saving embrace. Your sin is not more powerful than what I'm going to accomplish on the cross. The younger brother is not too far gone. The tax collector, the sinner, the prostitute, the marginalized, those who have been cast out, those who are in the shadows. Jesus is saying to them, come home. There's a place for you. You don't have to clean yourself up. If you today feel like you're too screwed up, you've done too many wrong things, that, yeah, okay, I know that message is nice, but if I'm going to come back, I've done some messed up stuff, man. You don't, you don't know who you're talking to here. Maybe I'll clean myself up. I'll get my sins together, and then maybe I'll come back to God. Jesus is saying, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. Come back to the Father now. Don't clean yourself up, but let him cover you, your shame, your past, your sin, and your guilt, with this robe, this new identity. Okay, but we're not done yet. Let's keep going. Okay, so let's keep reading now. 
This is uh, amazing news. Now the older son was in a field and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he, this was the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was a lost and is found. So the older brother's out working in the fields. He hears hooting and hollering, music and dancing. He asks the servants, what is going on? They tell him the good news, and he is furious. The first thing that he does when he hears this celebration of the good news is that he throws a pity party. He refuses to go in. He remains outside of the party. We can see him standing outside of the door and he's kind of publicly and visibly, he's, he's casting a vote of no confidence about his father's actions. Then the father has to leave his celebration. He has to leave his hosting to go deal with one of his kids outside who's throwing a bit of a tantrum. Okay, you can appreciate this dynamic that's happening a bit here. And this is also uh, a little bit demeaning for the father to have to do. He's the host, he's the lord of the household, and that he's got to go deal with this right now. This, this is quite, quite the, the, the spectacle that the older brother is making of himself. And when he comes out, he's very tender with the older brother. He entreats him to come back in. And the older brother does not respond to this invitation, but he continues to insult the father again. It was kind of expected in this culture that you would address your father and your elders with this elaborate, um, these elaborate phrases of respect. You would say, you know, most, most gracious father, but he doesn't address him this way. What does he say to his father? He says again, he says, look. That's basically like saying, look, you, and this is incredibly insulting especially to do in the presence of guests. So right there, it would have been expected that the father would have taken harsh actions to him. But he says, look, I've served you. I've done all this for you and I get nothing, nothing. And your son, notice he doesn't say my brother. He says, your son, who's blown all your money on prostitutes and partying, comes back and you do this for him? Also, actually, fun fact, by bringing the son back into the family, the, the younger, younger brother, the younger brother may now again be entitled to the father's inheritance when he passes away. So the father had this much money, younger brother leaves, he takes a piece of the pie, but then he comes back, and now that he's back in the family, he still might get a bit of an inheritance. So the older brother's inheritance may now be a bit smaller because the younger brother has come back to the family. And that's interesting because if you remember the first message of our detox series about God and money, we looked at this parable of the, the master of the vineyard and people are upset at his generosity. And he says to them, well, are you upset because I'm generous or is your eye bad because I am good? So the older brother 
maybe showing here what he really loves. Interesting point. So now, how will the father respond to his older son's insults, his rudeness, his lack of deference, and his rebellion? What will he do? Will he disown the older son now? No. Again, he responds also to, his, uh, to the older brother with tenderness. He says, my son, despite how you've insulted me publicly, I still want you in the feast. I'm not going to disown the younger brother, and I'm not also going to disown you, the older brother. I challenge you to swallow your pride and come into the feast. Come and celebrate this. The choice is yours. Will you or will you not? This is yet another unexpected, gracious appeal from this father. So the listeners, people who are listening to Jesus, tell the story on the edge of their seats. What's going to happen? Is the older brother going to come back in? Will the family be healed? Will, will the brothers be reconciled to one another? What's going to happen? And then guess what? The story ends. That's it. It's a real cliffhanger. And this raises the question, why doesn't Jesus finish the story? Why does he leave it unresolved like this? Why doesn't he finish it? Why doesn't he tell us what happened? Here's why. Jesus is going to let the Pharisees decide how the story ends. He puts the ball in their court. I hope you realize here that the younger brother is the tax collector and the sinner, those who were on the outside, and the older brother are the Pharisees, those who never ran away, those who stayed close to the Father and seemed to do the right things with their hands, but their heart attitude is wrong. Jesus puts the ball in their court. Are you going to repent and join the celebration? And you can see what, what happens after the fact. They, they don't respond to this invitation, but they actually have Jesus crucified. But this story is just as relevant for us today, 2,000 years later. Timothy Keller says this, The targets of this story are not wayward sinners, but religious people who do everything the Bible requires. Jesus is pleading not so much with immoral outsiders as with moral insiders. He wants to show them their blindness, narrowness, and self-righteousness, and how these things are destroying both their own souls and the lives of the people around them. So this story is aimed at those who would consider themselves religious. So we're kind of in the crosshairs. We may have been younger brothers. You may be a Christian today, but Christians sometimes can tend to be older brother-ish. There's a danger for the religious person. There's something, there's a state that religious people can be in, but it's not obvious that you're in it. Because consider the, the younger brother. It was very, very obvious when he ran from the father, when he wasn't in right standing with the father, because there was a physical distance. He was literally gone. And also morally, he was quite distant with what he was doing. But the older brother, he stayed at home, yet he remained more alienated from the heart of the father than the younger brother, because he was blind to his true condition. What are two markings? Two markings of the older brother's condition. First, the older brother doesn't love his younger brother. That's very obvious. He's not joyful when the brother comes back. He doesn't celebrate when the brother comes back. In both of the stories that Jesus told beforehand, there is a searching and there is a celebrating. But in this story, there is neither. Jesus 
knew the Bible quite well, actually probably better than anyone else ever. And he knew the story of another set of two brothers, Cain and Abel, and how there was a proud older brother who said to God, am I my brother's keeper? And so we can see here, if we're reading between the lines, that what, the, what a true older brother would have done, what a better older brother would have done, was taken responsibility for his younger brother. He would have said to his father, Father, um, my younger brother has gone away. He's lost. I'm going to search for him. I will seek him out, and I will try and bring him home. That was the brother's duty, and he neglected it. He also does not join the feast. He does not celebrate this redemption and reconciliation. So question for us, will we seek the lost? Will we seek reconciliation? Do you love those who have fallen away? Does your heart break for them? That's the first question we can ask. Do we have a little bit of the older brother's heart in us? The older brother did not love the son. Also, the older brother doesn't love his father. That's interesting. It says, we see here, he doesn't obey out of love. What we see is a joyless, perhaps a duty-based or fear-based compliance. The older son, he boasts of his obedience to the father. All these years, I've served you. Some translations say, all these years, I've been slaving for you. A slave does not serve out of love, but out of obligation, out of fear of what's going to happen. It's nothing but duty all of the way down. And this kind of gets at the root of what drives the older brother. Ultimately, older brothers don't live out of love, but perhaps out of duty, out of fear, out of obligation. And the Christian today would do well to remember that God is not after your begrudging submission. God's not after your begrudging submission, just, okay, I'll I'll do this thing. But God is after our joy. God is after our heart. He's after our heart first, and he'll deal with our actions after the fact. So here, let's summarize this very quickly. Younger brothers leave God to get things. Older brothers obey God to get things. Look at all that I did for you. How come I never got a goat? How come I never got to celebrate this with my friends? They don't obey God to get themselves in order to resemble him, in order to love him, in order to know and delight in him. So if, like the older brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you've done all these good things, you've worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper. He may be, you know, uh, an example, even your inspiration. But in this case, Jesus is not your savior. You're trying to be your own savior. You're trying to work hard enough that you can get the things that you want. Here then, with these two brothers, we see shown Christ's radical definition of what is wrong with us. Most of us, if we define what sin is, we would say sin is breaking the rules. And that is true, but it's incomplete. Because Jesus shows us a man, he shows us the older brother, who's violated, as far as we know, none of these moral rules. He hasn't done anything wrong, yet he is every bit as spiritually lost and distant from the heart of the Father as the son who was engaged in wild living. We see two people that are both separated from the heart of God because sin is not just breaking the rules. It is putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge, just as each son sought to displace the authority of the Father in his own life. So we must admit that we've put our ultimate hope, our ultimate trust in things other than God. 
and that both our wrongdoing or our right doing, our wild living or our moral behavior, we've been seeking to get around God and get control of the things that we want. So let's return to our original question. Why are people responding differently to the church today as compared to what the body of Christ was when Jesus preached? Well, we can see one thing, perhaps. The church has forgotten its message. I think that's one thing we can draw away from today. And what's part of this message? One of the things that we see in this parable is this, the message, the problem. The younger brother doesn't know he's welcome, and the older brother doesn't know he's lost. That's what we see in this parable today. The outsiders, the tax collectors, the sinners, they don't know that they're welcome in the body of Christ, that they're welcome to come back to the Father. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the older brothers, those who have done the right thing, they don't know that they're distant from the heart of God the Father. They think that their proximity equals intimacy. I've been around God or Christianity. I guess that's the Christian life, right? You just hang around, you just sit in the pew on Sunday, you just kind of soak it all in via osmosis. But you can be around God your whole life. You can learn lots about him and you cannot know him personally. Younger brother, watching today, you are loved. What you've done is wrong and you already know that. Come home. Older brother, you are loved, and what you've done is wrong, but you probably don't know that. Come home. Older brother, your good doctrine on its own will not save you. Your good living on its own will not save you. The only thing that will save us is union with the one who conquered sin and death. And if you don't have that, you are still dead in your sins and you are alienated from the heart of the Father. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Do you know the true older brother, the real older brother, the better older brother, who sought us out when we were far from the Father, who sought us out and who brought us home at great expense to himself so that we could be reconciled with God and brought into this great family of faith. Do you know this? Do you love your brother? Do you love your sister? Do you love your father? We can ask these questions today. Do I make the discarded feel welcomed? Do I make them feel welcomed in the body of Christ? Do I love God or do I love what he gives me? Do I obey out of joy or do I obey out of duty? Are we here at Bayview Glen a church that welcomes the younger brother, that welcomes the younger sister, the person who is wayward and tells them there's plenty of room at the table? Are we the place that reminds the older brother and reminds ourselves that we all need to be put back in right relationship with the Father, that we first receive God's love and then our good lives, our good works and our good deeds follow from that. But it's not working harder to get God's love, but we receive the love of the Father and we are transformed by that. And there are outward manifestations of this. So church, let's, let's respond to this beautiful invitation to once again come home and invite those to the love of the Father.